All right, good morning. If you want to find your seats, peace be with you. It's good to be with you guys. If this is your first time here, my name is Garrison, and I'm one of the pastors here at Veritas Dayton. Um, We're very glad that you're here this morning. Uh, If you would, open your Bibles with me. We're going to be looking at John 16, John 16, verses 4b, so the second half of verse 4. The outline of the text kind of necessitates that we break up the verse uh, in, in half. So 4b to verse 15, John 16, 4b to verse 15. Um, If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be white paperback Bibles at the edge of each bench. You can grab one of those, turn to page 526, and that'll get you where you need to go. John 16, 4b to 15. If you don't have a Bible, take that one home. That's our gift to you. We'd love for you to take that home and make it your own. Um, Before we get into the sermon, I have some some things I'd like to address. Um, It's no secret that the, the American people are... Uh, currently going through a time of of great exposing. Uh, Since 2016, over 200 men, uh, celebrities, CEOs, politicians, have been exposed as having committed some form of abuse or harassment, typically of a sexual nature against um, female peers. And a, a sort of tipping point came this last October, October of 2017, when the, the Me Too movement uh, began, uh, which is by and large a, a very good thing. Uh, countless women across uh, different social media platforms began to publicly announce that they too are survivors of sexual abuse or have experienced some form of, of sexual harassment in their lives, um, which, you know, while that's, while that's absolutely heartbreaking, um, it probably shouldn't come as a surprise to us since uh, statistics show that one in four women and one in six men will be sexually assaulted at some point in their life. And what I wish I could tell you this morning is that amongst Christians and amongst churches, um, the record is, is spotless, but it's simply not true. On the heels of the Me Too movement, if, if you were paying attention uh, came social media posts with the hashtag church to stories of those who who had experienced some form of harassment or abuse at the hands of church leaders or from fellow church members came forth stories where even if church leaders were not involved with the harassment or the abuse, they were active in trying to cover it up or they failed to properly report uh, the 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 abuse or harassment to authorities. And in the last couple of months, um, we've seen similar stories come out in churches and ministries of the Southern Baptist Convention. Um, One of the most public being a very well-known and and respected leader by the name of Paige Patterson. He's been a a very well-known, a very well-respected pastor uh, and and a well-respected president of uh, Southwestern Seminary for many years. And it recently came to light that uh, several years ago he had made uh, objectifying comments about a 16-year-old young woman in a sermon illustration. It came to light that um, that years ago he had counseled women who were suffering under severe physical abuse by their husbands to not, re- re- to not report the abuse, to not leave the home, but to simply stay and, and, and merely continue to just pray for their husbands instead of getting to safety, instead of reporting that abuse to authorities. 
At this point, a number of of very brilliant and bold uh, Southern Baptist women spoke up, drafting and signing a letter calling on the board of Southwestern Seminary to take a strong stand against this unbiblical teaching regarding womanhood, regarding sexuality, regarding domestic violence. And shortly after, there were a number of of men, uh, Southern Baptist men, who spoke up in support of these sisters' voices, also drafting and signing a letter. And then another development occurred recently with this story. Recently, it came to light that uh, Patterson had uh, had knowledge of and had failed to report a severe case of sexual assault on his seminary campus. Instead, with a small group of men, he counseled the survivor to just forgive the assailant, not to report it, and to not carry the matter any further. Uh, Now, Patterson was rightly removed from his position as president this last week by the seminary's board, albeit in a way that doesn't take into account the seriousness of his errors. But part of what was so surprising uh, uh, about this is is that there were a number of other Southern Baptist leaders who jumped to his defense and who sought to vindicate his actions. And that coupled with other like situations that have arisen recently almost inevitably leads us to conclude that there is likely other stories with other leaders like this that are going to come forward in the months and maybe years to come. This is probably the the beginning of of more to come. As Southern Seminary President Al Mohler stated this last week, it is as if bombs are dropping and God alone knows how many will fall and where they will land. And now, some of you might not even be aware that we're associated with the Southern Baptist Convention. We're not ashamed of it, but it's also not something we flaunt. But we are associated with the, with the SBC, and therefore, I want to make it very, very clear here this morning that we as a church are far less concerned with the reputation of the SBC and the reputation of evangelicalism in general than we are with that uh, for the, the, the good and the the justice on behalf of uh, survivors of such abuse. We wholeheartedly believe that our God has an unyielding concern for the abused, for the harassed, for the threatened, for the suffering, for the vulnerable. We believe that God is just, that he loves justice, and that it is his will that perpetrators of abuse and harassment should be held accountable for their actions. We believe that there's never any excuse for abuse, be it verbal or emotional, physical, spiritual, or sexual. And we believe that there's never any excuse for covering up such abuse. And therefore, I want to make it very, very clear this morning that our church is one that is resolved and committed to stand for and with survivors of Abuse. I want to make it very clear that we are resolved to protect those who have been abused or are currently being abused or who might be abused in the future. That means that we, we're also resolved to holding perpetrators of abuse accountable for their actions. That means that, that we're resolved to, to carry out the biblical process of church discipline should any member of this church be a perpetrator of abuse. That means that we are resolved to report any criminal instances of abuse to law enforcement. And as a church, we are resolved to offer offer safety and support to any woman or child or anyone threatened by abuse. And I want to make that very, very clear this morning. Our church will not be one in which the abused are exploited while abusers are protected. We are committed to be a church where the abused are heard, are protected, and are cared for. 
And we are committed to be a church where those who commit such abuse are held accountable for their actions. The gospel of Jesus Christ makes that necessary, makes those commitments and resolutions necessary. And so the elders and I want to make that known this morning uh, with, with pastoral motivations, okay? We, we want to make that known with pastoral motivations. What I mean by that is that if you are a survivor of such abuse, of some form of abuse, or if you ever in the future suffer from some form of abuse, we don't ever want you to be uncertain about whether or not you can come forward to someone in leadership here, be it a female leader or one of the elders or someone else. And we don't ever want you to be uncertain about whether or not you'll be listened to or whether or not we'll do our best to protect you or whether or not we're going to report any criminal instances of abuse to authorities. We want to make that very, very clear with those motivations in mind. So um, if you have any questions about any of what I just said this morning, uh, please feel free to speak with me or another elder after the service, Dan or JJ. We'd be glad to speak with you. But for now, um, let's take a moment to pray. Uh, and, and, and then let's get into the text together. Father, you are a refuge for the broken. You are a refuge for the vulnerable, for the suffering. You are a God who is unyielding in your commitment to judgment, to justice, to things being made right. And so we, we ask that in light of that, that this church would reflect that character to one another and to the world. That we would be a people who are unyielding in our commitment to justice because we are unyielding in our commitment to you and to reflecting you. Lord, we, we ask that, that you would also, um, that you would help us do that, Lord, because we, we recognize that we as a church, we're not, we're not immune to what is going on in our culture and in, in the SBC right now. We're not immune. We're, we're not any better than the, the people who are being exposed right now. And apart from your sanctifying work, apart from your gracious work in our lives, we're we're culpable to, to make the same sort of actions, do the same sort of things. And so we ask for your help. And we ask that you would enable us to be a people who protect the vulnerable, the suffering, those who have suffered from abuse. That you would help us to be a church that is committed to uh, holding perpetrators of, of such abuse accountable. And we ask, Lord, that that ultimately it would be for your glory and for the good of this church and for the good of our city and for the good of your world. And we ask, Lord, for uh, renewal to come across um, your people, the church. Lord, and, and we believe that a time of exposing is necessary for that to happen. A time of exposing and a time of repentance of such wicked acts, abuse, harassment, covering up such acts is necessary. We, we need repentance. And so we ask that you would pour out your spirit, your, your spirit who convicts us of sin and righteousness and judgment. Would you pour out your spirit upon your people in this church and all across this nation and all across the world to grant genuine repentance 
Not self-vindication, not trying to hide, not trying to cover things up, but genuine repentance. And then times of refreshing and, and renewal. Lord, and we ask that you would help us to be agents of justice in this world. Your justice, biblical justice, social justice. Lord, and, and we ask now that as we open your word, that you would continue that sanctifying work in us. We know that you work through your word to form us and build us up into the people you've called us to be. And so we ask that you would do that now as we open your word, that you would form us to be a people who are unyielding in our commitment to justice and unyielding in our commitment to reflect you into the world. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. We are going to dig in to John 16, 4b. To 15. If you'd like to stand with me for the reading of God's holy word. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. It's Thursday, the Thursday before Good Friday. He's about to go to his death. And this is what he's teaching them. He's comforting them with the good news that the Holy Spirit is going to come. This is what he says. I did not say these things to you from the beginning, because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I did not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness, and judgment concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. Well, last Sunday was, according to the church calendar, the day of Pentecost, the day we celebrate the coming of the Holy Spirit in a new and profound way in the lives of God's people and redemptive history. And it's a monumental story. If you've not read it, I suggest reading it. It's Acts 2. Uh, just 10 days earlier, uh, the disciples had witnessed the ascension of Jesus, and we looked at that several weeks ago in Acts 1. Uh, and before he ascended, Jesus told his disciples to not go anywhere, not to do anything, but to simply stay in Jerusalem and wait for the promise, the coming of the Holy Spirit. And so they listen, they stay in Jerusalem, and they have this 10-day prayer meeting uh, where they all gather together every day for prayer and for seeking the Lord. And, and on the 10th day, they're all gathered together, they're praying, and just whoosh, a great big gust of wind flows through the room. And it's such a powerful gust of wind that it like makes noise, you know, that kind of gust of wind. It's loud gust of wind blows through the room. And as it blows through the room, individual tongues of fire appeared and rested on each one of them. And there's about 120 of them. And they, they'll start praying and praising God. And they're, they're doing so in a bunch of different languages. And what this represents is the coming of the Holy Spirit. And because of all this, this ruckus, a crowd eventually shows up. And, and when the crowd shows up, they, they hear all of these disciples of Jesus speaking in their very own languages. 
Uh, now, these disciples, they, they shouldn't be multilingual. These are poor, uneducated men and women from the region of Galilee. And, and yet this crowd shows up and they hear the gospel of the glory of God and, and the grace of God being spoken in their very own language, only with Galilean accents. And so they're perplexed, they're, they're somewhat confused, and some of them mocked, and some asked what on earth was going on. And so Peter gets up and he delivers a gospel sermon. He says, you crucified and killed Jesus at the, by the hands of lawless men, but God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. He says, God raised up Jesus, and of that we are all witnesses, and now he is exalted to the right hand of God. He gets up and he preaches a gospel sermon. He gets up and preaches about Christ, about his life, about his death, about his resurrection, about his ascension, about sin and judgment. And he applies those realities to the crowd present there that Sunday morning, about this time, 10 10 a.m., 9 a.m. And when the crowd hears these words, they respond. They cry out in desperation. Acts 2.37 says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? What is that? What's taking place there? It's John 16, 8. And when the Spirit comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. That's a direct fulfillment of what Jesus said would happen. This is the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. He was there taking the truth of the gospel and piercing the hearts of the crowd with it. He was causing them to cry out, brothers, what shall we do? He was working through God's word to convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And while times change, places change, people change, while we may not be in the setting of first century Palestine, while all the apostles died long ago, and a lot has happened in the last 2,000 years, even while all of that is true, the Holy Spirit, we believe, we confess, we trust that the Holy Spirit is alive and present in the church today to do that very same thing. He still does this today. The Holy Spirit still works through his word to bring conviction. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to focus on verses 8 through 11. That's what we want to look at this morning. Our big idea for the morning is this. Because of his kindness and our need, the Holy Spirit graciously brings conviction. He graciously works conviction in and through his people. Because of his kindness and our need, the Holy Spirit graciously works conviction in and through his people. And we'll unpack that as we look at the need for conviction, the Spirit's work of conviction, and the means through which conviction comes. First, the need for conviction. Now, almost right away, you hear the word conviction, it might cause you to to recoil a little bit. We almost always prefer to to think of God, um, and and specifically, like to think of the Holy Spirit. We like to associate God and the Holy Spirit with, with good vibes, don't we? We, we, the first words that come to mind when we think of the Holy Spirit uh, might be um, something like peace. It might be something like power, maybe gentleness, maybe something else. And all that is good and right. That is, that is good, that is right. Don't, me, don't hear me say it's not. We, we should associate the Holy Spirit with peace and with power. We should associate the Holy Spirit with gentleness. Jesus, the apostles, clearly tell us that the Holy Spirit brings peace and power God's people, to, to God's people. Gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit. That's all good and true and right. But we don't naturally associate him with conviction, do we? We don't readily associate him with, with feeling bad, sensing shame, sensing guilt. We don't as readily like to think of him as one who exposes our rottenness. 
But that's precisely what Jesus said he does here. And it's precisely because of our natural aversion to conviction that we need him to do this gracious work in us. Because if he doesn't do it, then our salvation, our transformation is absolutely hopeless. And here's why. We are masters at self-vindication. Like we are masters at making seemingly airtight excuses for our sinfulness. Like, tell me if I identify with this. No one is better at making me feel more comfortable and more at home than in my sin than I am. Like no, no one is better at vindicating my horrendous thoughts, my horrendous words, my horrendous actions than I am. And my experience, just as a human being, but particularly as a pastor, has led me to conclude that the same is true for every single one of us. No one is better at making you feel more at home, more comfortable in your sin than you are. No one is better at making excuses for our sinfulness than we are. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Nowhere is that more clearly seen than in our faulty estimations of ourselves and of our righteousness. Apart from the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, the convicting work of the Holy Spirit, we are determined and resolved to do just that. Therefore, apart from the Holy Spirit, we will never acknowledge the depth and, and width of our sinfulness. Of course, you know, it's, it's rather easy to see the, the, and comprehend the sinfulness in others. Like, we readily see the sinfulness of Republicans if we're Democrats or of Democrats if we're Republicans. We, we, it's easy to see the hypocrisy of our boss at work. It's easy to see the faults of the way our parents made us, raised us, and, and their, their shortcomings in raising us. It's easy for us to see and spot the sins of our spouse. And we almost never give others the benefit of the doubt, do we? We almost never assume the best about them. But, but when it comes to ourselves, we, we lust after and objectify people of the opposite sex, and we vindicate ourselves by saying, well, we just appreciate beauty. We, we gossip and have conversations about people behind their backs that they wouldn't appreciate. And we vindicate ourselves by saying that we're just verbally processing with our friends. We're just asking for prayer requests or this really problem situation in our life. We, we lose control and we shout at our children and we justify it, saying sometimes you just have to remind your kids who's boss. Or, or I'm a good parent for the most part. Sometimes my kids just push me too far. At meetings, at work, or at home with our families, we're domineering and we talk over people, but we vindicate ourselves by saying we're just exercising our leadership gifts. We relate to others in horrendously unhealthy ways. And we say, well, my Myers-Briggs, my, my, my Enneagram says that's just the kind of person I am. It's not sinful, it's just part of who I am. And we could go on, but the truth is that we're masters at vindicating ourselves. We're pros at excusing and exalting ourselves. Whether we realize it or not, as human beings, we are in desperate need of the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. We need him to turn the lights on, as it were, and expose us. We need the Spirit's work of conviction. The second, the Spirit's work of conviction. In his great kindness, the Holy Spirit, he doesn't let us continue in the state state of self-vindicating, excuse-making wretchedness. He graciously exposes us. When he comes, Jesus says, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. 
Now, this word convict here gives the picture of, of exposing, like exposing that which is truly there. So we're quick to kind of sweep things under the rug. We're quick to minimize sinfulness. We're quick to vindicate and excuse ourselves. But the Holy Spirit does this gracious work of exposing what's really there. Uh, Kevin DeYoung, in, in his little booklet on the Holy Spirit, he gives us this picture. He says, it's as if the world is having a nice romantic dinner by candlelight. You just have two little candles there, barely lighting the room. You can't see all that much. It's kind of dark. You're thinking things are all like sirloin and roses. It's perfect. It's romantic environment. It's perfect. And then voila, the Spirit flips the lights on to expose cockroaches scurrying up the wall. Garbage strewn about the floor. We're not as good as we'd like to imagine, and the Holy Spirit can prove it to us. He exposes us in our wretchedness, and he does this by awakening our consciences, giving us a sense of guilt and shame over that which truly makes us guilty or that which we should be ashamed of, namely sin, our wanting righteousness, our faulty judgments. Jesus says that the Holy Spirit will convict the world concerning sin because they do not believe in me. He says this because at the root of all sin is unbelief. Okay, this is, this is true going all the way back to the garden in Genesis 3 where Adam and Eve, they ultimately disobeyed God and ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Why? Because they didn't trust God's words. Instead, they trusted the words of the serpent. And as good children of Adam, apart from this gracious work of the Spirit, we don't believe God's words either. We don't believe in Christ. Instead, we listen to the voice of the serpent. We listen to our corrupted nature. We listen to the voice of this this corrupt world with all of its, its systemic injustice and sin. We don't believe Christ. We don't believe in him. Instead, we listen to the voice of the serpent. The Spirit exposes this and convicts us of this. Next, Jesus says that the Holy Spirit will convict the world concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. What he's saying is that the world is impressed with its own righteousness and its own goodness. The world is concerned with vindicating itself like we were just talking about. And yet the ascension of Jesus to the Father is God's way of saying that Jesus is the only one deserving of such vindication. He is the only one who can truly say that he is righteous. He is the only one who has earned God's righteous stamp of approval. And while all of us as humans have been impressed with our own goodness and righteousness, God has been saying that we should be impressed with Christ's goodness and righteousness. While while we've tirelessly been seeking to vindicate ourselves to no avail, God has vindicated Jesus by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand. And the Holy Spirit makes us realize this. He makes us realize that our righteousness, as Isaiah 64, 6 puts it, is like filthy minstrel rags. If we're to be judged in our own goodness and righteousness, we will be found wanting. We will be found lacking, but not so with Jesus. God vindicates him because he is truly righteous. He goes to the Father, and the Holy Spirit convicts us of this. Next, Jesus said that the Holy Spirit will convict the world concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. The Holy Spirit convicts the world of the reality that there is a judgment coming. He convicts the world of the reality that we will all have to stand before God and give an account one day. And you will have to give an account for your life. Your children will have to give an account for their lives. Your neighbors and coworkers and friends and parents will all have to give an account for their lives. 
And for those who didn't confess that Jesus is Lord and believe in him in their hearts, he will send them away into eternal punishment. This is what Jesus said about himself. He said himself these very words in Matthew 25, 46. And he's given us proof that this is true, that this judgment day is coming and his victory over Satan and his death and resurrection. This is why he says the ruler of this world is judged because he's, been, he's given a foretaste of that day of universal judgment and the victory of his cross and resurrection. So Paul says in Acts 17, 31, God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. That day is, the, is coming and the Holy Spirit convicts us of this. And one thing I want you to notice about all of these, these things that the Spirit convicts us of is that they are all in relation to God. They're all in relation to who Jesus is. Like the type of conviction that the Spirit brings and that Jesus is talking about here is the conviction regarding the nature, the character, the work, the judgment of God. This, this kind of conviction is not simply feeling bad because you have to face some hard circumstances due to sin in your life. This, this type of conviction is, is, is not just feeling bad because your spouse or friend is mad at you. This kind of conviction is not, uh, not even just, just uh, feeling genuinely sorry because you've hurt someone's feelings. This kind of conviction is your conscience being awakened to the reality that you have sinned against a good and holy God and that you have not honored him as God, that you have sought to exalt and vindicate yourself over and against him. It's your conscience being pricked by the reality that you have fallen terribly short of the goodness and glory of God. It's what David experienced in Psalm 51 when he says, Against you and you only have I sinned, O God. We just read that earlier. It's what caused Isaiah to cry out in Isaiah 6, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the glory of the Lord of hosts. It's what caused this crowd to cry out in desperation in Acts 2. Brothers, what shall we do? And you can't manufacture that. That's not natural. That's supernatural. That has to be a work of the Spirit opening your eyes to the beauty and goodness of God, to the beauty and goodness of Jesus. That has to be a work of the Spirit softening your hardened and blackened heart. That has to be a work of the Spirit awakening your cold, unfeeling conscience to the greatness and holiness of Christ. And we need this. We we need this. Like, we need the Spirit to do this in those we've been called to be witnesses among in our homes and neighborhoods and places of employment and education and all the rest of that. But we also need it ourselves. We need him to do this in us and in our families. We need the Holy Spirit. We need him to be at work among us in this way. And that requires us to be devoted to the means through which he works. That requires us to be devoted to the means through which conviction comes. This is part three, the means through which conviction comes. The Holy Spirit uses means to accomplish his work of conviction. He uses instruments to accomplish his work of conviction. Typically, we, we don't see what we might call the unmediated work of the Spirit, okay? Um, like, typically, he doesn't just kind of randomly zap people that are walking down the street and convict them. Can he do that? Yes. Has he done that? Yes, absolutely, perhaps on a rare occasion. But those are outliers. Ordinarily, he uses means. He uses the means of grace. We, we talk about the means of grace. He uses the means of grace, 
We don't have time to go through all of which those are, but, but let's consider a few very briefly, the, a few that the Spirit uses to convict the world and to convict us concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. First, he uses the means of preaching. This is probably the most obvious because we just read Acts 2. What's going on in Acts 2? Peter gets up, he preaches a gospel sermon, he preaches about the life, death, resurrection of Jesus, the ascension of Jesus. He preaches about sin and judgment from uh, the, the prophet Joel and from several psalms. And the Spirit uh, applies the Word of God to the crowd who are present, just like we do every single Sunday morning. This is what we do. This is what the church has done for the last 2,000 years in the streets and in church buildings and in public halls. The preaching of the Word of God is uh, an instrument. I would even go as far to say the chief instrument through which the Spirit works in the lives of His people to bring about conviction and conversion. So this is the means through which he uses preaching to pierce our hearts with the truth of the gospel and to bring conviction. He uses the means of preaching. Next, he uses the means of prayer. I'd be willing to bet that with the majority of us here this morning who have become Christians, our kind of initial conviction and then conversion came around the time that someone had been specifically praying for us. I know that's my story. Someone had been specifically praying for me. There was a large group of folks at the church that I grew up in. They were praying fervently for 24 hours at a time. They were praying for many things. And one of the things they were praying for was me and for my conversion, my conviction, the work of the Spirit in my life. And that, that I would be brought to Christ. And the Lord honored those prayers. He used those prayers as a means to accomplish his purposes. And I'd be willing to bet that your story is the same. There were some folks at your church growing up praying for you. There were folks in this church who were praying for you. There were young life leaders praying for you. There were parents praying for you. There's a pastor praying for you. And the Spirit used the means of prayer to ignite your heart when you heard the gospel and to convict you concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And so I ask you, who are you praying for? Who are you asking your city groups to pray for? Who are you asking the elders to join you in prayer for? And not only that, but are are you praying for this church? Like for for the people of Veritas to be a people who grow increasingly vulnerable and sensitive to the work of the Holy Spirit. Like we're not without sin. We are not without things for which we need to repent and come under the conviction of the Holy Spirit for. We need him to continue to do a greater and greater work in our lives as a church. We need his convicting power. We need to pray. The Holy Spirit uses the means of prayer. And last, the Holy Spirit uses the means of personal evangelism. Now, undoubtedly, there's something unique about the public reading and preaching of God's word that takes place in a setting like this, but the word of God is not chained to the pulpit. Like you are released every week into the world, empowered by the spirit of God and equipped with the word of God to make the gospel of God known in your various spheres of influence. In your places of of, of Uh, In in your homes and in your neighborhoods, in your places of employment and education, you are released, sent out every Sunday at the end of the gathering, having tasted and seen the glory and grace of Jesus Christ in order to help others taste and see the glory and grace of Jesus Christ in your words and in your deeds. And so I want you to consider, there are people in your life right now, family members, coworkers, neighbors, friends, that the Spirit is planning on using you to accomplish his work of conviction and conversion in their life. He's planning on using you and the means of personal evangelism to draw them to Christ. The Holy Spirit uses the means of personal evangelism. R.A. Torrey 
He tells a personal story in his book on the Holy Spirit. Uh, He was a pastor in Chicago, and one day, when the elders of Chicago Avenue Church were gathered for a business meeting, one of the elders interrupted the meeting, and he said, Brethren, I'm, I'm greatly troubled by the fact that we have so little conviction of sin in our meetings. While we're having conversions and many accessions to the church, there's not a deep conviction of sin. And I propose that we, the officers of the church, meet from night to night to pray that there may be more conviction of sin in our meetings. Tori goes on to say that the suggestion was taken up by the entire committee. That means they all approved it and they all committed to it. And he said, when we had not been praying many nights, one Sunday evening, I saw on the front seat underneath the gallery when he's preaching, a showily dressed man with a very hard face. A large diamond was blazing from his front, from the front of his shirt. He was sitting beside one of the deacons. As I preached, this man's eyes were riveted upon me. When we went downstairs after the meeting, the deacon brought the man over to me. He was deeply agitated. He groaned, oh, I don't know what's the matter with me. I never felt this way before in all my life. He, he sobbed and shook like a leaf. Then he told me the story. I started out this afternoon to go down to the Cottage Grove Avenue to meet some men and spend the afternoon gambling. As I passed by the park over yonder, some of your young men were holding an open-air meeting, and I stopped to listen. I saw one man testifying whom I had known in a life of sin, and I waited to hear what he had to say. When he finished, I went on down the street. I had not gone far when some strange power took hold of me and brought me back, and I stayed through the meeting. Then this gentleman spoke to me and brought me over to your church. I stayed to supper with them, and he brought me up to hear you preach. And then he brought me down to this meeting. Here he stopped and sobbed. Oh, I don't know what's the matter with me. I feel awful. I've never felt this way before in all my life. And his great frame shook with emotion. Tori said to him, I know what is the matter with you. You're under the conviction of sin. The Holy Spirit is dealing with you. And I pointed him to Christ and he knelt down and cried to God for mercy to forgive his sins for Christ's sake. Preaching, prayer, personal evangelism. These are means through which the Holy Spirit accomplishes his work of conviction. And so I ask you, are are you willing to be devoted to these means? Are you willing to pray, fervently pray for the people and mission of this church? Are you willing to fervently pray for a greater work of the Holy Spirit in our midst and in our city? Are you willing to pray for those who have yet to know Christ? Are you you willing to step out in personal evangelism? Are you willing to be devoted to and to sacrificially participate in the means through which the Spirit works in and through us? Are you willing to be instruments in the hands of the Holy Spirit? He convicts the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment, just as Jesus said he would do. This is what we need And this is what the world needs. And because the the Holy Spirit is gracious and he's kind and he knows our need, he gives it. And so let me exhort you, be vulnerable, like you personally, be vulnerable to the convicting work of the Spirit in your life. Be invariably vulnerable to his convicting work in your life. 
Like you have sin for which you need to repent in your life. I don't know what it is precisely, but I know it's there. You need to be invariably vulnerable to his work of conviction in your life. Who among us is without sin for which we need to be convicted? Be invariably vulnerable to his work of conviction in your life. And also if you're a Christian, be a means through which he works in the lives of others. Devote yourself to those means. Let me be clear. It's not your job to convict Okay, don't, don't try to manipulate. Don't try to play the role of the Holy Spirit. You know, Billy, Billy Graham once said, it's God's job to judge, the Holy Spirit's job to convict, and my job to love. Just simply love people by sharing the truth of the gospel with them, praying for them, serving them, inviting them into a relationship with others in the church, inviting them into church on Sunday. And I trust that the Holy Spirit, because of our need and his kindness, he will graciously grant conviction through the witness of his people. It's what Jesus promised he would do. It's what Jesus promised he would do. Because we need his work of conviction and he gives this work of conviction. Therefore, we should devote ourselves to the means through which he brings us conviction. Because of our great need and his kindness, the Holy Spirit graciously works conviction in and through us. Let's pray. Father, we need a greater work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We need a greater work of the Holy Spirit in our midst. We personally need greater conviction of sin. We need to repent more deeply. We need to to repent of sin more deeply. And we need those times of refreshing that come in, in seasons of repentance. We also need the power and presence of the Holy Spirit as we seek to be witnesses in the world because we're we're, we're hopeless in this mission without the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. And so we ask, pour out your spirit on us in power, we pray. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Let's take a few moments for silent reflection and then Pastor Dan is gonna come up and, and lead us to the Lord's table.